Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. Get social with the Unelectables. You can find us on Twitter at Unelectables. And on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. Gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, how the heck are you? It's been a while. In case you forgot, I am the enlightened savage, Joey Oberhoff here. And I'm Kyle Schmidt. And together and we, we are the Unelectables. Now you might notice a little bit of a delay there. That's because both of us are trying our very best to both stay healthy and stay out of prison, sir. Well, I'm, I, I just in general try to stay as socially distanced from Joey as possible. That's because good because he's he's on the other side of issues, and uh, and we know that uh, that that makes him the bad guy. Well, it's funny you bring that up, Kirk, because unlike a normal episode of The Unelectables, where we would talk about all of the news of the day, and believe me, not just over the past six months, but over the past week and a half, there has been a lot going on. Just for the record, we're recording this episode during the last 13 hours of Donald Trump's presidency. So a lot has gone on over the past six months, but instead of just talking about everything that's gone on and recapping the news, we're going to do something a little different this episode, and we're going to talk about something that is is really unavoidable at any level of politics at any time, irrespective of who's in power. Well, we're going to talk about divisibility and uh, and really how uh, how toxic politics has become on all levels especially in the era of social media. And, and uh, I don't think we're going to come up with any solutions to it today, but, but I think it's worth, worth discussing um, as two, um, two uh, people who have been in the system. Um, we'll say uh, the wonks uh, represented by Joey and the flax represented by, by Kirk. Absolutely. And, and the thing to keep in mind, too, is this is this can be construed, this, this special episode of The Unelectables can be construed as a bit of a cautionary tale in ways, because the reality of politics and retail politics and electoral politics has really shifted in Alberta, in Alberta's municipalities, in Canada, and indeed in the Western democratic world over the course of the past 15 or 20 years. Now, a lot of that has to do with social media, but a lot of that is just the blowing winds of change. And it's important to understand that. So if you, dear listener, are thinking that maybe you'd like to run for office someday, you can approach it from an informed place. It may be the greatest idea you've ever had, but more information can only be a good thing. So I think it's it's good to start with with um, with talking about you know what one might construe as the good old days, because you know, as much as I don't want to play the game of, you know, things were better in the past because so many things were not, uh, I think it's important to, to kind of recognize that there was a time, at least on federal and provincial levels, where 
politicians really uh, left it on the floor of of the the parliament buildings. Um, so so you will hear stories about people who uh, who were bitter enemies on the floor and uh, were perfectly fine, you know, in person. And 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 kind of there was a, a level of this is the job, very similar to the way that courtrooms work, where where lawyers generally are are part of a system and, and they recognize that they both have roles to play and the opposition is there for due diligence but it's not there for uh for really being against the other person and so so you know there there are cases or, or there you'd hear stories of say like jim flaherty uh used to be known for you know going out for drinks with with people uh after being in the house and it wouldn't matter what party they were with, even though Jim Flaherty was with the Conservatives. Uh, similarly, you know, um, Thomas Lukasik and Brian um, Brian Mason, right? Brian Mason w- was leader of the provincial NDP. Thomas Lukasik was part of the PC party, um, and they're known to to still have a friendship after all of these years because, in the end, they they left it in the Parliament building. So uh, we had that not you know, 25, 30 years ago. So, so part of the question is, what the hell happened? Well, it's, it's an excellent question. And I think in order to answer it, we need to touch on one of the favorite subjects of mine, something that I've talked about a bunch on this podcast and, and other places as well, which is this idea that we've moved from being uh, a, a people that discusses political ideas and we've moved towards being a people that discuss political beliefs, right? Ideas can change over time. In fact, it's it's encouraged for ideas to change and evolve as you gather more information. That's the whole idea behind ideas. But political beliefs are your bedrock foundational view of the world, and they cannot change. And in fact, it's considered a badge of honor that they do not change. And that's a fairly recent phenomenon, and it has come with the polarization of society as a whole through social media. It's come with the polarization of the media. Uh, It used to be that average citizens tended to be united along this idea that, well, you know, those rotten politicians, they're all the same. And now it's more of a case of, well, there's the politicians who I agree with. And they are saints and martyrs to the cause. And then there's the 48% of the population that disagrees with me and those rat bastard politicians who sold out us normal people to play identity politics. There's that other group of people, and I can't stand that other group. Whether we're calling them deplorables or whether we're calling them sewer rats or we're saying they're not patriots, or whether we're saying they're not legal voters and they're probably illegals, right? We find this way to demonize the other side, and it's so much easier now, because 30 years ago, if you had this idea that the other side was the devil, the worst you could do was go into a Tim Horton, sit down and talk really loud, or send a letter to the editor and hope it got published. But now, you can type a few key search words into Google and find a web page with a hundred people who live within 10 minutes of you 
you think exactly the same way. And the next thing you know, you're storming the U.S. Capitol. Well, and, and I, I think there's there's almost a almost a gamification of of political beliefs, right? That you know what what used to be a um, you know here's my belief, and and you might have a couple of people uh, you know sit there and go, oh yeah, that's that's a really good thought. You know, to your point, you you basically get these echo chambers. But at the same time, if if you happen to say something really witty or happen to call out somebody on some uh, hypocritical thing that they did or or some you know stupid thing that they did that that they might not even have realized that they did years ago like there's kind of this point where you you point it out and all of a sudden it gets this massive amplification and we know that social media creates these these endorphin rushes so you can just imagine how over time we've we've almost become programmed to this idea of you score a political point, you get all of this applause from uh, from your your allies, which which you know helps with with all of these fun fun lovely chemicals in your head. Um, at the same time, you are seeing you know the the people who are against you, which which like like completely ramps you up as well, and and it's really easy to you know see other people arguing with them and go, yeah, no, they're wrong, I'm right. Like it's We've we've created this, these amplification systems that have only increased, and then and then there's this level of you know politicians have also figured out how to use that to their advantage. Like the, like if if you look at kind of you know um, behavioral economics research over the last twenty years, like we've started to really figure out how to say things in certain ways that we know will cause people to to act certain ways because. We have brains that really have not evolved over the last thousands of years, whereas this research and the ability to manipulate it is all very new and very, um, you know, the people who, who know it and know how to use it know how to do it well. Like, like marketing understands our brains far better than we individually do. So all of these combinations, the ability to score these points, the ability for politicians to use uh, all of this research that we've done on behavioral economics, like it, it's created this perfect storm in terms of making sure that me as a politician, I get the most support possible and I'm able to vilify my my opponents in in devastating ways. Right. Well, and if, if we look outside the public square and we're just talking strictly about the political theater, of it all in days of yore and i hate to sound like i'm 90 you know but i'm i'm almost halfway there in days of yore politicians would be going for the 30 second soundbite right that was that was the ultimate goal i want to say something that they're going to be able to play on the news that is going to be witty it is going to be pithy it is going to make people like me and want to vote for me and if it makes them hate the other guy all's the better, because that's almost as good as them liking me. Uh, so that's what politicians would go for. They'd go for the 30-second soundbite. Now, they're also going for the retweet. They're going for the like. They're going for the follow. Follow me on Insta. Follow my Finsta. Follow me on Snapchat. Follow, subscribe to my YouTube channel. You know, uh, it's only a matter of time before we get a politician who's got an OnlyFans account. In fact, I'm sure there's probably a few who already do. <laughs> But 
I have no idea what that is, Joey. I'll tell you when you're older. The important thing, though, is that we've got politicians who now have tapped into this resource. And whereas before, you only had to be, as a politician, on when the cameras were on, now the cameras are always on. So you can't put down your sword and shield and go to the local pub and tie one on with the leader of the opposition. You can't do that anymore because somebody's going to see it. Somebody's going to pull out their camera phone and video it and say, see, Kirk's not a true believer. Kirk is breaking bread with our enemy. We need to make sure we make sure that Kirk isn't even renominated for the next election. And next thing you know, there's a grassroots push to get you out of office because you dared to sit down and share some chicken wings with the leader of the opposition. Well, and and that's you know I was thinking about Polly Wings as we were as we were preparing for this because you know a few years ago, um, and and by a few years it's probably been more on on order of a decade or more. Uh, a bunch of us got together, you know, a, people across the aisle, uh, and we played Chatham House rules. So you know you could acknowledge that something was said at Polly Wings, but you could not acknowledge the speaker. I have heard. People who were libertarians uh, be in favor of policy that the NDP were for and things like that because we all played under these safe rules that where it was like, you know what, we can actually have good political discussion uh, without, without consequence. But, but to your point, the camera's always on. I was, I was really thinking uh, just now, too, when you were saying that, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you were a Wayne and Schuster fan, Joey. Yes, I was. So, so they had this skit when when the House of Commons decided to get cameras for the first time um, and actually show video of the floor because there was a time where people would argue in the House of Commons, and the only way that you could get an idea of what was said was was by reading Hansard, and and Hansard doesn't pick up the random things that are fired across and and the theater of it all. And so when, when, when cameras were in, kind of Wayne and Schuster, you know, did this, this skit of, of, you know, how the House of Commons would become basically this massive show. And they, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, you know, one of the things I remember early on was, you know, the one person going, the speaker of the house is wearing sequins, you know, and it was just, you know, it became this whole uh, song and dance and, and you know, people pounding tables to to the music and 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 the 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 shots fired across that were very uh, very pithy, kind kind of to what you said. Uh, it became about the soundbite, and so so it's really interesting. Even even having read Hansard from say the the late eighteen hundreds, and reading some of the stuff now, and, and how pithy it has become, and and how how little substance there is on a lot of these discussions, or at least at least in, in the more theatrical times like question period. You know, we've th- this has been a very long path. This isn't something that was created by social media. I think it was amplified by social media. Right. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's, it's been a long road getting from there to here. But since we are here, 
right? We're we're in this situation now, right? We can't go back. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So people are constantly in this day and age, a small but vocal minority, I would say, decrying the lack of civility, right? And and almost exclusively, they're decrying the lack of civility on what they perceive as being the other side. It's the classic case of, well, the party I support or the politicians that I support, they are the, the height of gentility. But those other bastards, oh my God, they're handing out earplugs in question period. They're, you know, or, or Premier Ford has all his junior staffers applauding so reporters can't ask follow-up questions. I mean, these guys are the worst, but, but mine are fine. How do we get, or, or can we get, to a place where politicians are actually able to, instead of just fighting each other for four years to ensure their reelectability, how do we make it so that they can actually collaborate and do some governing without constantly being worried that they're being watched 24-7 and that somebody back in their home riding is collecting receipts so they can take their job someday? You know, it's uh, there was a time where I believed that what the House needed or, or Parliament needed were politicians who came in who who thought this way, right? Who who kind of think the way that you and I do, where it's about civility, even though you know, even though there's somebody who is on the opposite side of you, you have respect for them because they are they are in Parliament because they want to make the country better. Um, their view, vision of that might be might be skewed from mine, but but in the end, you know, everybody's there for the same purpose. I I once believed that it was possible for people like those to be elected, and to to fill the house and and almost lead by example. Um, and I remember uh, Belinda Stronach uh, said something. Uh, after she she left the House of Commons, and and she basically said, and and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it was something to the effect of, politics won't get better until the voters get better, and and I I actually took that as as you know, like I I was not impressed with that comment at all, and I think over the years I've I've realized the wisdom in that in that uh, until politicians are rewarded for being or for, for taking the high road and and that I think it's going to be really difficult for politicians who want to do good uh, to to come into politics and and part of it is because you know who wants who wants to subject themselves to to you know all of this um, scrutiny and, and not that scrutiny is bad but but there's kind of a level of, of your entire life is is being crucified at any given time. So so how do you get people who want to do good things um, into politics and have them believe that they can actually win, that they, they don't have to succumb to uh, the, the the nasty tactics and things like that? And And I don't know, you know, it's a game theory exercise that I don't know is winnable as long as voters continue down the path of wanting personalization. And by that, I mean, you know, there, there's very much become this air of, you know, I agree 90% with this person, but there's this 10% of it that I don't agree with. So I'm simply not going to vote because uh, they're horrible. 
uh, because that 10%, I cannot, I cannot find myself to agree with. Um, and I, and I think there's a bit of an imbalance too, in terms of who is willing to do that. Like what, what you'll see is I think people you'll find in more conservative circles tend to be more of, of the view of advancing conservatism in general is good. Even if my candidate does some things that are, um, unfavorable, whereas, whereas people on a more liberal side, uh, tend to crucify their own, uh, super quickly. Um, and, and, you know, this has been pointed out in a few different podcasts I've listened to that, that kind of this, this thing exists that, you know, uh, somebody on the more liberal side does one thing wrong and, and they're out. Whereas, you know, you get, you get cases like, like Donald Trump who, you know, they're, the, the list is, is enormous in terms of, of, um, of personal flaws and, and laws being broken and that type of thing. And, and still there's this view of, Yes, but, um, but it, but it's this hyper personalization of politics that has really uh, caused voters to to basically crucify people who don't agree with them one hundred percent. So, so what what does that incentivize? It incentivize uh, one lying to uh, to to groups in order to get their vote, or or creating these very very general statements and not not standing by anything in particular or you know simply saying that no we won't we won't screw with healthcare. um that's a guarantee here's my signature um and then not not uh, standing by that at all right it creates this environment and so it's it's a bit of chicken and egg like as long as politicians are egging on the crowd uh the crowd's going to respond but as long as the crowd responds positively to that what incentive do politicians have to run? What incentive do good people have uh, to put themselves out there, to put themselves in potential debt as they as they run for election, to subject their family and, and friends to scrutiny? Like, why? Well, and that's an important question, especially in the light of the fact that as we record this, nominations are already open for Alberta's municipal election. Coming up, uh, coming up this October. So, so people have actually, as of the recording, of this uh, pretty much exactly nine months to uh, get their name forward, a run a campaign, and win election. Um, but to your point, who in their right mind would want to? I mean, uh, to be clear, the money is okay, but it's not good. No. Especially if you're coming from an, ex uh, an executive background, if you're coming from a legal background, if you're coming from a medical background, the money's okay, but you're probably still not going to be able to buy a house on Lake Chestermere for what you're making. Um, for, yeah, and, so and for everything that you're potentially sacrificing, it, it really does tilt the scale. So why would you even want to put your family through this? So, so to put this in perspective, you know, when, when I was, you know, when I was in my twenties and, and, you know, out of university and, and, you know, working for Staples, you know, $150,000 a year job looks pretty good. Uh, but you know, when you break it down, so, so that was, that was what a member of parliament made about, about when I was running. Um, I wasn't at Staples when I was running, but, but, uh, but that's about what they make. Now, there used to be tax credits, um, and at different levels of government there are, but there used to be tax credits for housing in Ottawa. By the time that I was running 
federally there wasn't. It was basically the $150,000 salary. It was taxed. The only thing that the, the only benefits that you basically got were uh, so many free flights across Canada, which are presumably for going Ottawa and back and and things like that. But but effectively, if you want to spend any time in Ottawa, uh, living in Ottawa, you have to uh, you have to find a place to live. So so not only is it having a place in Calgary, it's having a place in Ottawa. And this is on the hundred and fifty thousand which, you know, starts to starts to eat up that money pretty good. And, and that's why, you know, you'll see a lot of times um, in politics, you'll see a lot of politicians actually uh, live together, like like find apartments together because uh, because you, you kind of have to like you're not going to make you're gonna, not going to get rich on the salary. Um, now, there are probably ways that one can get rich, you know, other ways. But again, it, it comes back to the, you know, what do we what do we want out of our politicians? Well, of course, comes to worst, Kirk. You could always list your list your uh, apartment on Airbnb when you're not in session. Uh, I I hear that works if you want to go into publishing a, an online newsletter. But uh, uh, you know, as we look deeper into what motivates somebody, if it's not the money, is it the access to power? Is it the ability to make change, or is it? What comes after? Because it seems like, I mean, to be perfectly clear, even if you're a cabinet minister in a provincial or federal government, you have staff working in your office who are making more than you. You are not the highest paid person in the room at any given time during your day. So if it's not the money, but what comes after is the consulting gigs. What comes after is the lobbying contracts, as we've seen with former cabinet ministers. What what comes after is access to halls of power that you didn't necessarily have before. Is that the motivation to, to, to stick this fight out? Because, of course, after people win election to office, they don't get to forget about politics and just start governing for the public good. They have to immediately start worrying about their next election, because if they don't, then they've only got the one term to get anything done. And and so, this this again behooves the question of what what is it that we need to do in order to bring some civility back into politics, um, and and you know what or or maybe maybe more appropriately, what is it that we need to stop doing that that is moving us farther down this path of division and and is it something that we actually have control over or is it going to be a generation generational thing well i think that, that you hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about brain chemistry i mean what we're fighting here is not some nefarious force that that's trying to insinuate itself into our politics and our day-to-day -day lives well at least it, at least if you know unless we're talking about the presidential election in the united states i i don't know what you mean but what we are talking about you sent me. What we are talking about is uh, this the brain chemistry of it all, right? It, it used to be that if you counter uh, counter argued something in a town hall, let's say your your local politician, your local city councilman holds a town hall, and you get up at the mic and you make a quality point in return, uh, and and a couple people clap for your points. Hey, good job! And they give you the old attaboy pat on the shoulder when you were done. 
uh, and then you went home and you would you would tell your tell your partner all about it and and you would feel good about it for a couple of days and you would say yeah yeah I made a pretty good point but now now you go home and you can't sleep for six or seven hours because you are fixated looking for that video to go viral on YouTube and now you're looking to see how many people are following you on Twitter that weren't following you before. You're looking for retweets and you're looking for likes. And to a greater or lesser extent, we all do this. Whenever we have a have a tweet or have a Facebook post that starts to go a little bit viral or the, gets picked up by the mainstream media and gets shown on a screen somewhere and somebody sends you a message and says, hey, I just saw your tweet on the national. And you go, yeah, I made it. And, and your brain rewards that like you just had a triple-decker Sunday and you want more and you need more. So how do we fight against biology? <laughs> As I said at the beginning of this podcast, I don't know that we're going to come up with solutions here today. I, I think it's it's just uh, fascinating to think about the problem because, you know, it really we're we're dealing with a situation where we have not evolved fast enough to deal with this crap and and so that's why i kind of mentioned i wonder if this is going to be a generational thing because i i have often wondered does the next generation does my son's generation the tiktok generation are they more willing to uh let people have flaws like th th these are these are the kids who have lived their entire lives online who make mistakes online and you know it are we are we as a people going to be saved by just the fact that there's going to be a new generation who just accepts that yeah your lives were online we did stupid stuff at different times we make mistakes and and we move on like are are we just caught in this this really weird timeline where where like you and I grew up at a time when when the internet did not exist at least at least not in in its current incarnation you know and and so we're we're battling this you know, politics should be this way, but but you know these things are happening. Maybe maybe we just have to wait. Well, I mean, you know, as an exennial—that's what I'm told I am anyway. Uh, Dial-up internet made its way into our home when I was in first year university, right? I had to study for diploma exams out of books, right, or using Microsoft Encarta. Uh, <laughs> shout out to those of you who still have a CD-ROM drive. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad for, for the hundredth time that your son is as smart as he is because somebody from his generation is going to have to figure this out and they've got to be smarter than you and me because I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how the, the, the kids who grew up online, the kids who grew up with a camera and a video camera in their hands, we know kids. We know the kind of things kids do, and we know that there's always somebody recording them, even if it's themselves. And once it's on the internet, it's there forever. So they are going to figure out one way or another how to deal with beautiful transgression or that blog post I put out when I was really mad and I was 13. They're going to figure that stuff out, and you and I are going to be sitting in rocking chairs, shaking our fists at, at our Google Glasses. Uh, uh, as as the news streams directly into our cerebellums, uh, uh, talking about kids these days. So so rather than than just wait for 
you know, our kids to fix this whole mess that we've created and generations before have have created. Um, I wonder, like, what what are behaviors that we need to fix? What like like how how do we look inward? I, I'm going to take you know since you mentioned Star Trek earlier in your oh so subtle way. Um, you know, how are the ways that we, we take it upon ourselves to improve ourselves? Because, because that, I think that that's the thing that constantly gnaws at me on social media is, is what are, what are the habits that I do that are not making this better? And, and, and what are, what are the things I can do that aren't going to have me crucified by, by being like, oh, you just sit on the fence and don't, don't hold any position. Like, like there's gotta be ways that we can we can basically help this this situation um you know kind of like i i think to traffic we you know uh there was research done quite a few years ago where the best way to get rid of of gridlock is actually for people entering the gridlock to just coast uh because if you coast your car then then the vehicles behind you aren't rapidly braking. And if everybody kind of does that coasting, it eventually breaks up the traffic jam. But if everybody, you know, drives right up to it and then slams on the brakes, it continues indefinitely. And so I wonder what, what are the things that we can do to coast this a bit, to, to create that separation to, and to create that, um, to, to, to basically start to break this apart. And, and can we, it is, is there, are there enough people to do it? Well, I think in order to be effective, one of the things that is helpful, honestly, is to take it offline, right? The immediacy and the endorphin rush of, of doing things online and going viral and that sort of thing is a big part of the problem in, in this day and age, at least. Um, and you, you touched on it before when you talked about polyin, which was something that we held fairly regularly. I think for a while there it was going every other week. Um, and we would just get together on a Wednesday night at a pub that is no longer in operation in Calgary, Morse City, uh, and, and we would just put down our, our swords or, or beat them into plowshares, and we would just sit down and say, you know what, let's just have a beverage, let's have some chicken wings, and let's just talk as, as humans, right? Because you are deeply involved in the inner workings of your party, and I am deeply involved in the inner workings of my party, and the person sitting next to us is a city councilor. And the only thing we all have in common is we all know at the end of the day that we're trying to make things better and we're not going to accomplish anything by just yelling at each other because people yell at us all day. So let's just be humans to each other for a little bit. And over time, that created an environment of trust where people could bring forward ideas and not debate them like we were on the floor of the House of Commons but rather discuss them in almost a scholarly way. And, and, and we, we had a great friend who's unfortunately no longer with us, uh, Robert Sallows, who was an absolute genius at this because Rob was very involved in the progressive conservative party at the time. Um, but he would sit next to people from Wild Rose or people who worked for the New Democrats and, and just say, that is fascinating to me. Can you tell me more? Can, can you explain the thinking behind it? Because I want to learn more. And if we could all be more like Rob, I think that that would be a wonderful thing. But it, it would require us to put down our phones 
and go out and meet somebody face to face because and and there is no shortage of studies on this people are willing to say things to other people aided by the distance and at times anonymity of the internet that they would never say to that person's face because there's a natural and i think perhaps healthy fear that if I said that really dickish thing that I just thought to somebody's face, he's going to cave my face in. So I better be careful about how I put this. And, and you know, I'm not saying that we should constantly live in fear, but if we get offline and start to consider each other as humans instead of as avatars and start to consider our thoughts more than 280 characters at a time, I think we would be amazed at the kind of conversations we can have with our fellow humans. Yeah. Well, and, and even you think of the, the number of times when, you know, you mentioned this earlier when, when people go, well, my guy doesn't do this, but your side, uh, they're, they're always, uh, assholes. You know, it, I, I think, you know, the, the, the number of times where, where I've had the conversation with people that, where I've gone, have you read some of the stuff some of your side does? Like, you're seeing it because, you know, it's antagonizing your side um and and the one the ones that are antagonizing the other side you don't see you know there are those times where where you can have those conversations and go look it's it's happening on on all sides so how do we you know how do we work to prevent this well a perfect example is uh, a few years ago i think it was during the redford term of uh of alberta so uh who uh she used to she used to live in the office that jason kenny works in now um, but no, I think it was uh, somewhere around 2011, 2012. Um, uh, the PC party very justifiably got into a lot of trouble about the kind of donations they were accepting and the source of those donations. They were, uh, contradictory to the law. And, and so the party was getting raked over the coals for this. And, uh, we went to a poly wings during that time. And I was sitting next to somebody who held a very senior role in another party, uh, in, in that party's office, their administrative side of things, not their political side of things. And they just looked at me and they said, if they looked at our books, they would have found exactly the same stuff. Sure. And that made me feel a little bit better. I, I mean, the, the PCs were in the process of refunding the money and, and changing the policies and changing the law and everything to make sure it didn't happen again. But these other parties were very quietly dealing with the exact same issues because it had been brought up in relation to the PCs. And they ran right to their filing cabinets and pulled out their stacks of receipts and went, oh, my God. Um, and that is a human connection that I would not have been able to make online. Sure. When, when, you're, when you feel like your ship is sinking, you don't reach out to the enemy Navy for help. At least in politics, you don't. But perhaps there's something to learn from real life, because in real life, when you send out an SOS, it might be your country's sworn enemies that come to fish you out of the drain, because that is the law of the ocean, and it transcends any country's law. Right. So, I mean, I think that a big part of it is if we stop thinking of people as being from the other side and we just start thinking of people as being 
from a different perspective, right? It, not everybody who disagrees with you is wrong and you don't know everything. Those are two things I say to myself in the mirror every morning and they never stick, but I'm going to keep saying them until they do. So what comes next? Well, what comes next? We're talking about identity politics, right? We're talking about me versus them and, and the way in which we divide people in order to win elections. Because if you want the opportunity to govern, first you have to win, right? And there's strategic considerations to be made and you read Sun Tzu and you read Machiavelli and, and you come to the decision that this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to split people up. But nature splits people up in certain ways, too. And one of the most basic ways in which nature, nature splits us up is by, by gender or, or biological sex. Uh, in, in the case that we're discussing, it's going to be gender. Um, and, and there was a very interesting article that came across the desk this week that we're going to dive into much more in depth in a later episode because it deserves a lot of attention. But it's very relevant because... As was mentioned earlier, we're going into the nomination, well, we're in the nomination period for the upcoming municipal elections here in Alberta. And it was related to the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the success rate of female candidates for municipal office across Canada. Is that right? So, so the, the paper, which was, which was published in the Canadian Journal of Political Science uh, by Cambridge University Press, um, is Women's Municipal Electoral, Electoral Performance an Introduction to the Canadian Municipal Elections Database? And uh, there are a whole lot of names um, on this paper. Uh, Lucas, Merrill, Bleduc, Brew, Conrad, Eidelman, Coop, Marciano, Taylor, and Vallette. Um, now, I think, you know, there's a few things. One, this paper seems to be like an initial just kind of a I don't want to say throwaway because it really isn't but more of a like they created a municipal elections database so that there is a central repository for municipal elections information and this was the first piece of information that they decided to look at and this was estimating the gender differences in municipal electoral performance so basically they have um, thousands of unique elections, in, in fact, 24,000 unique elections, over 1,800 mus municipalities. And they basically uh, used a number of inference databases and things like that to figure out uh, gender because because a lot of this goes goes back a lot of years. Um, and, and effectively, they looked at, or one of the first things they looked at was what are the chances of a female winning an election versus a male. They also looked at what are the odds, or, or I guess I should say the propensity of an incumbent winning, um, you know, as, as another probability of, of electoral success. So, so what this paper basically said is that uh, they figure that there is a 6% higher chance of a woman winning a municipal seat over uh over a man um so i i mean officially the phrase that they use was officially women are six percentage points more likely than men to win municipal elections now there's a lot of things that they do not delve into and they state it right right there that there's 
there's potential bias because of time. You know, they they didn't look at people who, you know, because municipal doesn't have party politics, theoretically, it's a little bit more um, open, but, but we know that municipal politics still has um, political party leanings and undertones in, in quite a few places, but, but they didn't look at, you know, kind of views. They didn't look, you know, or at least, you know, at least in this, they didn't really talk about kind of uh, views and, and things like that. So it really was about introducing this database and basically going like, here it is, like, we're going to be able to now get more information out of it. But it, but it is certainly interesting in terms of uh, from what they have been able to infer with the data. Um, as I said, women are six percentage points more likely to, than men to win. Okay, so if women are 6% uh, more likely than men to win, um, and, and it's important to point out that at least for the purposes of this study, uh, while we haven't read the entire exhaustive thing, it, it appears that those are the only two genders that are listed. Uh, and, and I know we're going to have some listeners who are smashing their heads against the dashboard as I say that, but um, there's, there's no listing for any transgender candidates who are, who are known to, to have run and or won uh, office. But um, why aren't they occupying more seats? Then? Well, uh, and that, that, that's the interesting thing that it that it implies, right? Is is you know that there's kind of if if we were to if we were to say that there there are all these potential stoplights in terms of uh, getting more women in government. Um, really, what what this has done to some degree is, and even even if it's wrong, even even if it's you know, they're 10% less likely or that type of thing. It still does not identify the reason for such the large gap. So what 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 is really interesting to me and I think becomes now the next thing to look at is, is if women are more successful than men at winning, then, then the reason for there being less women in government uh, is is less likely to be based on individual performance in a an, elec an election scenario and more has to do with the number of candidates okay. and there are some organizations to be clear that have identified this as a problem and have been working tirelessly uh to to advocate for uh different types of faces on ballots and in in municipal and and other levels uh, politics, um, the the ask her folks are are just terrific, uh, and and it would behoove anyone, including us, to speak to them about the kind of initiatives that that they're working on and what they're hearing as they approach uh, people and and say why wouldn't you put your name forward? I mean, we spend a lot of time at the beginning of this podcast. Thing. Why would anyone put their name forward? But uh, just as valid question is why? Why wouldn't you? Why aren't you putting your name forward? I mean, we don't have to look too far here in Alberta to see that um, uh, disproportionately the candidates for municipal office are overwhelmingly male. Um, it's it's just you know staggering. Um, Edmonton, in its entire history, has had one female mayor. Calgary has never had a female mayor. Um, in fact, I'm sure you could count the number of candidates uh, who launched serious campaigns and captured more than, I don't know, 
10% of the vote on, on one hand, uh, the two cities combined. I haven't done that research, but I feel fairly confident in, in saying that. So what is it that is, uh, is uh, stopping women from stepping forward and, and saying this is something I'd like to do? And I think that we would really benefit from having a female voice and from talking to the, to the folks that ask her uh, to see what they have to say about this as we dig more in depth into this report on a future episode. And, and that's it. I, I mean, I can hypothesize that uh, that a lot of it does have to do with what we have talked about for most of this episode, which is which is really this this toxicity that exists in politics. And you know, why would you put yourself out there? Um, but but we also come from a uh, view of privilege, and we come from a um, you know, you and I are both uh, middle aged white male. Um, you know, like we we just don't have the the viewpoint to to speak accurately to it so we can hypothesize but in the end we we do definitely need to bring in um viewpoints of those who who are directly affected by it absolutely yeah uh, i mean uh, i'm not apologizing for being a middle-aged white male I, I didn't choose any of those things to happen uh one of them in particular i was fighting against for a long time but here we go i'm middle-aged um but, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's not within my frame of reference in order to in order to speak properly on this uh, issue. So uh, it would be a waste of everybody's time for me to try. But I would love to talk to somebody who can bring a a, a valid and informed perspective uh, to to that subject, um, because right, it, this is just one of the many ways in which we are divided. Socio, uh, socioeconomically, demographically, um, uh, religiously, there there are millions of different ways to dice the onion that is humanity. But at the end of the day, in politics, it's it's about being able to bring enough of that onion together to make something that somebody really wants to have on the plate. And um, you know, it, it would be foolhardy to assume that all women want the same thing. In much the same way, it's foolish to think that all men want the same thing or all Catholics want the same thing, um, because that's not how groups work in, in politics. But um, when you're trying to decide how you're going to run a campaign, it's important to identify areas where you think you have particular strength and areas just as importantly, perhaps even more so, where you feel like you have uh, potential weakness. And sometimes there is a hint in the demographics. There's a hint in the way in which society uh, has divided people. And if you're a, a candidate who wants to bring people together, you first have to know where those divides are so you can try and bridge them. So I, I think we're, we're reaching to the point where, where uh, you know, people are going to complain even more about the length of time that we, you and I talk. Um, you know, this is still only like one quarter of the length of a Joey blog post. So, so I don't know what people complain about, but whatever. But, but I, I think, I think maybe some takeaways is more conversation. Like that, that's what this last point ends up being, being about is we need to have more conversation with more diverse views in order to get better, spend less time online using less divisive language. Uh, you know, we didn't really talk about it too much, but, but you know, like talking about the left, the right, like anything that groups people in 
in categories that are unequivocally used to berate are is is not good and and we i i think most of us have done it um i've certainly done it before um i think i think we need to to move away from that we need to we we just need to start supporting people running and not being so so willing to go after the endorphin rush of scoring points here and there you know and and start to actually have conversations with people you know you know why why you know did you do this and and asking people directly um and rather than than trying to score the online point of look at what this person did might make the difference it probably won't right now because everybody's super defensive because we've lived in this environment right the you know it's you know do you support you know uh, this policy, you know that you're probably being recorded, and and your your response is going to be posted for everybody to see. So, you know that there's going to be um, some timidity on on that part. But but I think as we as we go forward, it needs to be more conversation. It needs to be uh, less uh, aggressive, divisive tone, and and I think we just need to start looking for and rewarding the people who do spend the time trying to bring people together rather than tearing them apart. Right. I mean, and it's important to remember, and, and you and I know this as well as anybody, it, it's okay to disagree with somebody. Like, we're not saying everybody needs to agree about everything. That would be awful. That would be not just because it would be boring. I agree, Joey. Yeah, me too. Brilliant. Bully, bully. No, it would be, it would be terrible, right? Homogenization of, of political ideas and policy would be terrible. Uh, as a capitalist, I firmly believe that competition uh, is, is better for uh, the consumer and competition is better for the electorate because you have competing ideas and one idea is going to win, or several ideas are going to have to uh, be amalgamated into one workable idea. So um, not everybody needs to agree about everything, but there is a way to disagree without being a dick. And if, and if I can have our listeners take one thing home from tonight's episode, don't be a dick. 2020 sucked. There's a reason we only put out like three episodes in 2020. It was a terrible year, and we were all doing the best we could to survive with our mental health just a little bit intact. And since we've come through it with our mental health only slightly intact as it is, and we're all still trying to recover, uh, just be gentle with your fellow citizens. They will have different ideas than you. That's fine. Not everybody likes pineapple on pizza. It's not a reason to take somebody's job and start posting threatening messages to their kids. So, Joey. Kirk. Final message for candidates. Yeah. Under understand that you know, you, you've got a, you're 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 in a horrible place in terms of our history with with 
social media and toxicity and all of that, do the best you can. Uh, try to ignore the crap. Try to get sleep instead of worrying about the random retweets or the random uh, responses. Uh, elections aren't won on Twitter. Um, you know, talk to people. And, you know, hopefully through uh, better voter behaviors and better behaviors by politicians, we can get through this. With that said, Kirk, I have one last important question for you. Online voting, a great idea or the greatest idea? You're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to use divisive language. Um... <laughs> I, find your, I find your premise to be uh, foolish. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, it is good to be back. We're going to do this more often, I promise. Kirk and I have another project that we're uh, collaborating on, a bit of a personal project of mine uh, that we're hoping to get off the ground here in uh, in October of this coming year. Um, you'll hear more about that as the date gets closer. But in the meantime, we will be conversing more, and we will be uh, making that available to you so that you can get together and unite as a people about how odious you find it. So, until next time, I am the Enlightened Savage, Joey Oberhoffman. And I'm Kirk Schmidt. And together we are The, the Unelectables.